Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. The big group that we've continued to miss as a church are all the families who struggle to be part of church as a result of, you know, a child or a parent, you know, who's wrestling with a mental health issue. Because families who have mental health challenges, there are there are certain things about the culture of the church and certain expectations that we have that don't necessarily fit with a lot of the common traits and attributes that we see with, again, our more common mental health conditions. How can you take a child with disabilities to church when you don't feel you can take your child anywhere and then wonder if this church will be welcoming to your family? That challenging topic and many others today on Life Support with Dr. Steve Gersovich. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was a golden boy. All we can do right now is come together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. This is Life Support, hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. My name is Steve Johnson, director of Five Stone Media, a co-sponsor of this program, and our goal is to use this story to bring hope and healing. And now let's join the conversation with Pastor Paul. Hey, welcome to Life Support. So glad to have you here. What we do on this program is we tell stories to help you find a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, and we talk a lot about suffering and trauma and difficulties and trials because we find that this is where Jesus really emerges and this is sometimes where you find Christ in a new and deeper way. And very special guest, we have Dr. Steve Gersovich with us, who's kind enough to join us from Cleveland. Uh, he's a child and adolescent psychiatrist. He's the founder and president of Key Ministries. And uh, I really appreciate you being here, Steve. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me. So you're in Cleveland, and are you excited about the Browns coming up here? You're not not long to go here till the Browns are playing again. You have to understand that, like those of us of a certain age in Cleveland, never get excited about the Browns because, <laughs> like, the more the the more the expectations grow for the Browns, the greater the soul crushing disappointment at the end. <laughs> so it's basically guard your heart at this point until they win a few games. So. Like we say, Jesus loves you, but he hates Cleveland. <laughs> Good enough. Hey, um, we are um, in a very challenging time, obviously, in our country, and, and you have a real heart for kids, and you have a real heart for kids with disabilities. And uh, I, I do want to talk about this issue because it's really important. Um, and I'll just I'll just set the table by telling you that our family um, deals with kids with disabilities that are uh, anxiety-related, um, trauma-related that you can't see, but they're there. And um, you, uh, not too many years ago, our son was was killed. Um, his twin brothers were six years old. Um, that trauma has really rewired their brain, and we find that life has been completely different for them since. How difficult is it, let me start this way, for families that are dealing with disabilities with their kids, to integrate into the Christian community and try to find community within the church. So let me tell you a little bit about how I got involved with our ministry adventure. This is probably 25 or so years ago now. 
And I was on the elder board of our local church. And we had had some very like highly committed stalwart families who had gone over to um, Russia and Bulgaria after the fall of the Iron Curtain and adopted kids from orphanages who had you know, various degrees of trauma, neglect, developmental disabilities. Um, and one night we were at board meeting, a children's ministry director came and was talking about all the things that they were having to do to support these families because what they were seeing increasingly, and again, that these were folks who were, I mean, these were folks who were deacons, these are folks who in some instances were elders, you know, people who are leading small groups, people who are always volunteering, were struggling to stay part of the church because of the challenges that they were dealing with, with, you know, these children who they'd adopted. So I'm sitting there listening to this, and at the time we're running a pretty large you know, child and adolescent psychiatry and child and adolescent mental health practice outside of Cleveland. And so not formally like anything that we would like write up for a research study, but, you know, just to get a sense of the extent to which it's a problem for like three months, I just surveyed every family who came through and asked them one question. To what extent did or do the problems that brought you to our practice impact your ability to attend your church or place of worship? And I was floored by some of the stories that we started to hear. And so around that time or shortly thereafter, I got involved with some research that became very popular. And for probably six or seven years, I had the opportunity to travel around the country and like lecture to physician groups two or three days a week. And wherever I would go as part of the introduction, I would mention some of the work that our church was doing. And they started getting overwhelmed with requests for help. So key ministry came about close to 20 years ago now in response to that need. And essentially from the very beginning, like our focus has been on helping churches welcome and include families who had kids with quote unquote hidden disabilities, like you described. You know, at the time, you look at like the work that like Johnny and friends did in terms of, you know, improving access to the church for people with physical disabilities. You know, shortly after we got going, there was a, a great emphasis and an increasing interest on, you know, folks with what we would call special needs, folks with like significant or severe intellectual or developmental disabilities. But in my mind, like the big group that we've continued to miss as a church are all the families who struggle to be part of church as a result of, you know, a child or a parent you know, who's wrestling with a mental health issue. Because families who have mental health challenges, there are, there are certain things about the culture of the church and certain expectations that we have that don't necessarily fit with a lot of the common traits and attributes that we see with, again, our more common mental health conditions. And so while our ministry, we work with churches around the country and around the world around welcoming families of kids with all types of disabilities, my specific focus and interest in the ministry has been helping churches develop better strategies and, and to, to recognize the need for and develop the will to, you know, become intentional about welcoming families who are impacted by mental illness. Good for you, because I can tell you from a parent's perspective, the thought of bringing a young child to a children's ministry, for example, and being scared to death about what might happen with that child and knowing that those children's people there are not going to know what to do with your child 
will send you scurrying back to home pretty quickly. It's very scary. Yeah, you know, I, and, and you mentioned that. I think this example immediately comes to mind that there's a family in our church where, you know, I happen to know their kids professionally many years ago, where when we were having our first disability Sunday, um, these parents got up and talked about what their experience was like trying to find a church when they had a seven-year-old and a five-year-old with fairly severe ADHD. And, and one of the comments that the mom had made was that she had said in her talk, quote unquote, that people in the church think they can tell when a disability ends and bad parenting begins, mm -hmm. you know, which is the real challenge that a lot of these families wrestle with where, you know, they have kids with, you know, hidden disabilities. And so it's, it's really cool that like, you know, one of those two little guys who came 25 years ago, you know, is now a deacon in the church. And a couple of months ago, I got to sit there and watch them, you know, he and his wife like dedicate their baby, you know, and it, you know, it shows that, you know, taking the steps to welcome families who are, you know, struggling with this, you know, ultimately will end up having a multi-generational impact. Why is the church so slow to come around on mental health issues? I think that some of it has to do with, you know, issues that go back to, you know, the 1960s and even before that, where um, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the conceptualizations or the different schools of thought in terms of psychology, you know, and psychiatry, if you take a look at, you know, if you take a look at Freud, um, you know, if you take a look at, you know, Skinner and behaviorism, you know, and in particular, Albert Ellis, who started coming along in the 60s talking about, you know, everybody can decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. Um, you know, that, you know, that there are no, you know, there are no absolute moral laws. That, that one of the things that happened was that I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in the, you know, in the branches of the church, for whom scripture and adhering to scripture is most important, that struggled greatly with, you know, with the concern that, that some of the, you know, some of the ideas that were guiding the mental health treatment that folks were receiving at that time were, were antithetical to certain concepts related to the faith. Um, I think that we have made, you know, thanks to, you know, thanks to organizations like yours, um, thanks to other folks who are working in this area. I think, you know, Rick and Kay Warren have done, you know, tremendous work when it's come to this. I think that we've come a long way in terms of destigmatizing mental health treatment in the church. But I think that, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, we still, you know, there, there, there's still a struggle in terms of, you know, understanding how certain types of mental health treatment you know, can be, you know, can be integrated with and shown not to be in conflict with different passages of scripture. And I think that there's the concern, and, and I see this more among families, actually, than I do among church leaders, where there's, there's a reluctance to pursue help, you know, because of the concern that the people who are providing that help in the secular arena are going to actively do things to undermine what parents are trying to do in terms of their own children's faith formation. We'll be back to the conversation with Dr. Steve in just a moment. You know, our host, Pastor Paul, is a survivor too, losing both a wife and a son. And that's what life support is all about. 
Survivors in Discussion with Other Survivors. My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we are proud to be a co-sponsor of this program. For more about our work, you can log on to www.lifesupportresources.org. And now back to Pastor Paul. We have families in our church that will uh, email us or say, hey, I've got a child struggling with this, and they're asking us about a counselor, and they'll put a Christian faith counselor. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But my, my first reaction, if, if the child is five, six, or seven years old, is kind of like if your car's broken, like find the best mechanic you can because you just need to find somebody that can help you get some traction. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a, a Christian counselor. Um, but, but families don't know where to go for help. And they're, they're taught that you have to find a Christian counseling service. Sometimes there's other opportunities out there too, right? Well, I will say in fairness to some families that there's, there's an issue that's come up in the last year or two that's been a huge confounding variable, especially in certain parts of the country. And that's this, you know, overwhelming social contagion toward many kids describing themselves as being transgender. You know, and that's a situation where I can understand why parents are very intentional about wanting to seek out someone who is, you know, sympathetic to like the family's value system, you know, because of the concern that, you know, with something like that, the kids will actually be encouraged by the folks from whom they seek help, you know, to, you know, to go down that path. But also one of the things that I see, and I was talking about this with a, another disability ministry leader this weekend in an event that, that they had held, is that she said that like Christian parents and people involved in children's ministry and youth ministry are struggling so much to figure out what to do with some of these issues. You know, how do you parent when you have a kid who insists upon using a name different than the name that they were born with or identifies you know, or claims to identify with a different gender, you know, in, you know, in a larger culture, in a society where in school and in their peer group and on the internet, kids are likely to get a lot of affirmation. So that, you know, one of the things that I would say is that if, if, if you're struggling with something like this, um, it's probably more important to have a Christian friendly psychologist or counselor but you can probably get away with a having a physician or a prescriber who's not Christian because they're less likely to delve into some of the types of issues where, where families might have some concern. Yeah, that's good counsel. Uh, Steve, I know that the, st st uh, the stats regarding young people and suicide um, can be uh, difficult, and we don't often think about young kids and suicide and those types of things. But as culture kind of drifts toward the areas you were just talking about, and I'm no expert in this, and they shouldn't come to me for counsel, but families do, um, that young people are going to get more and more confused about who they are and, who, and where their identity lies. And that can't be leading anywhere good, can it? Well, <laughs> no, it is not. And I mean, you know, if you consider good, like, you know, the number of people I see in the tithe to our church and our ministry going up, <laughs> I suppose that that's good, but that's not the kind of good that we want. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, 
one of the things I find fascinating with all of this, and, and when I was going through the process of, you know, closing my office as we transition to more of like a virtual and a home-based kind of practice model, one of the things I made a point of preserving were the psychiatry textbooks that we used 20 and 30 years ago that talked about child development. Because, you know, with the, with the way that certain things in our culture have become politicized, um, I find a lot of folks in our profession like losing sight of some like very, very basic things that we were taught early on. You know, one of the, one of the issues that it seems like a lot of people have forgotten that, you know, if you take a look, you know, if you take a look at like Maslow's hierarchy, you know, the primary developmental task of adolescence is identity development. You know, and to say like if somebody, you know, when they're 12 or 13 or 14, that who they are at that age is ultimately who they're gonna be, you know, that doesn't fit with like long-standing understandings of like development, like over a period of decades. One of the things that, that I think almost borders on child abuse, you know, is the extent to which relatively young children are being exposed, you know, through, you know, sex education programs and initiatives in certain states. Um, you know, being, being exposed to things that I didn't understand until I was maybe in like high school and college. Yeah. You know, that, you know, we think about sort of like latency as a period, like, you know, where, you know, kids are relatively asexual and they, you know, you know, and they grow and they learn and, you know, and to expose kids to all of this stuff when they're not, you know, cognitively or emotionally ready to handle it you know, in my mind is like setting us up for a disaster. And, and, and let me give you an example of this. Like, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, our society in terms of like, you know, keeping kids away from like smoking, vaping, alcohol, you know, we've passed all these laws in the last 10 to 20 years to try to protect kids from stuff like that. But at the same time, like, it seems like, you know, every, you know, every school, you know, magazines targeting teens, um, you know, stuff that they see online, television programs, you know, glorify sexual expression. You know, and there's, there's unequivocal data from the, um, you know, National Youth Risk Survey, which is done by, you know, done by like the, the, the CDC, that, that every sexual encounter a kid has, regardless of like whether a boy or girl, gay or straight, increases the likelihood that they will attempt suicide and increases the likelihood that they will engage in a suicide attempt serious enough to engage in medical attention. Yeah, and so, you know, when you, when you take a look at this data, um, and, and one of the ways that I would talk about this, you know, as a Christian physician with a kid from a secular background is that, you know, my experience is that like the kinds of kids coming through our practice, um, they don't have the emotional maturity and they don't have the experiences that allows them to manage the intensity of the emotions when a lot of these relationships start crossing different boundaries and you know start violating certain biblical standards that are there you know as much as to honor god for our own protection and so you know so one of the things that I see a lot of that's, that's very concerning to me nowadays, and something I think that the church needs to figure out how to address is, um, you know, how do we help kids to understand, 
um, the you know the importance of and 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 you know and help you know and help you know pediatricians, doctors, teachers, educators, you know everybody else who's involved with serving kids, you know. Um, helping them to understand the importance of keeping them innocent as long as we possibly can, mm -hmm. you know, just because they're not, you know, they're not wired, you know, to be able to, you know, to process a lot of the things that adults are dumping on their plates nowadays. Yeah. Why are, why are adults dumping that stuff on their plates? What's the agenda? Well, um, I mean, I have my own, you know, thoughts about this, but, you know, it does seem that there are that there are certain elements in our society where um, there seems to be an attempt to undermine the structure and the authority of the family. I mean, you know, you see this, you know, you see this in countries with more centralized or more totalitarian kinds of leadership. But but one of the things that I also think is going on is that. Um, when you know when 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 you have people who are christian who live out the gospel um you know you read romans one and you know folks who are like leading certain lifestyles or intent upon pursuing what feels good to them in terms of thinking as opposed to like thinking about like what would honor god you know people who are focused on the me 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 um don't like their consciences tweaked you know, and so when when you see other people thriving and doing well, who are living with a different set of values, I think that there are certain people in our culture where that makes them feel very uncomfortable. Hmm. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and we're going to have you back again, obviously. But tell me about Key Ministry and, and what you do there. So with Key Ministry, what we do is that we help churches around the country and around the world to welcome and include families who have kids with disabilities with an emphasis upon hidden disabilities. So we put on an event called Inclusion Fusion Live, which has been the largest disability ministry conference in the United States now for several years to train leaders from around the country. Um, we run a group on Facebook that now has well over 2,000 special need and disability ministry leaders. And it's for idea sharing, mutual support, um, you know, education. We do, um, you know, we do regular video trainings online in terms of having like roundtables with other disability ministry leaders. Um, we regularly have webinars. Um, we have very popular, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter feeds and a branch of our ministry that provides support to families. And, um, you know, and, and I think the most important thing that we're able to do is that we have people who, you know, free of charge or, you know, able and available to come alongside any church that's looking to develop either a disability ministry or a mental health strategy and to be able to provide them with resources and support every step of the way. Oh, that's fantastic. So how do I get a hold of the ministry? What's a good way to contact you? Easiest way to find us is through our website. It's www.keyministry.org. Um, you can also reach us through, um, you know, through our Facebook page. But I think that the website's probably a great place to start because if people have specific questions or people have specific needs, there's a contact us form that they can fill out to tell, tell us exactly what they need. We can make sure we get them directed to the right person or to the right resource. 
Okay, Steve Gersovich, this has been really, really great. I look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for uh, being with us. Well, thanks for having me. You know, uh, as we talk, as a parent, uh, these are scary things that we really haven't encountered before. But here's what Psalm 119.76 tells us. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. And as a parent, even though we're feeling um, spun around and uh, panicky at times even, and that's why ministries like Key Ministry is so important to help us, you can also know that God is at work. God is at work in your child. Uh, God is at work in you. God is the provider of wisdom. He will guide you to where to go to help your child and give you wisdom through others or through different sources. And so we can trust that God is intimately involved with our families and remember that he loves your child even more than you do. And I know sometimes it's hard to really believe, but it's true. And so listen, um, we're glad you joined us here on Life Support. I want to thank our great partners that make this program possible. I want to thank Faith Radio, and you can reach them at MyFaithRadio.com. They give us this platform. They've been wonderful to us. You can watch a video version of this podcast at FiveStoneMedia.com, and that's a great organization, too. They're doing wonderful things to help churches get resources to, to tackle issues like this. And if you'd like to check us out at Ridgewood Church or make a contribution to make this podcast possible, you can find us at myrwc.org slash give. Also love to see you on Twitter. You can find me there at Pastor Paul J. At Life Support, we're here to tell stories. We're here to tell stories about trauma, about difficulties, about trials, because the ultimate goal of this is to glorify Christ, to give you a pathway toward Jesus, because many times it's through these hard things in life that we're talking about here that Jesus makes himself known in even a deeper way. So we look forward to seeing you next time, and thanks so much for joining us right here on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of life support.